a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. really excited to be here every week. I'm super excited to be talking to you. I've got an amazing guest um, on the show today, Rachel Elliott. Rachel is an oncologist and she has been diagnosed with breast cancer herself. The diagnosis has really shown her how little support there is for women managing menopause after cancer. And it's also shown Rachel how little she knew in supporting her patients before she was diagnosed herself. So this is going to be a really beautiful conversation. And in preparing to come on and talk to you and in preparing this conversation with Rachel, I actually felt really outraged and I can hear so many women ranting and being frustrated. And I'm also sometimes sort of really unsure of how we could support further and how we could support better. After the amazing episode with Dr. Alison Macbeth, who is a breast speciality doctor, she came onto the podcast and she spoke about the difficulty when you're navigating tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. And it is really very much what Rachel, our guest of today, was experiencing, but also many other women. Rachel said to me, the podcast has had a massive impact on her. It really struck home that she's not the only one struggling, not the only one feeling guilty that she should be grateful to be alive, not the only one feeling that this little white tablet is worse than chemotherapy and frustrated sometimes that her family, friends and colleagues think it's no big deal in taking this little tablet for the next 10 years. That's what Rachel wrote to me when she first got in touch after listening to the episode. And then I went back into the Facebook group and there were loads of other messages. And one lady said that after listening to the episode, she plucked up the courage to phone her breast care nurse. She then said in the group, she said she was really disappointed and upset by the telephone conversation she had. She asked if at one point she could get the chance to discuss being on tamoxifen and the impact it has on her life, like low mood, fatigue, a sore body, flushes, memory, word finding issues, no sex drive, weight gain, and so many other things. She is only in her early 40s. She's had a hormone positive breast cancer. And she's been on tamoxifen for a few years, but she's got many more years to go. And the answer from that particular breast care nurse was just no, that is your treatment plan for a woman of your age. We don't want your cancer to get come back. And basically, that's it. And this lady is, you know, it's got every right to be outraged. And I feel really torn in in knowing what we could all do next, because I tried to bring all these experts onto the podcast to 
to talk about all of our experiences and to help signpost and the experts have great tips of how they manage certain situations in everyday sort of their clinical settings. And then, of course, it's amazing when you go back to your healthcare team and discuss these issues with them, but then to just be rejected and being told, no, there is nothing we can do for you. Basically, you know, tough luck, this is your treatment and, and that's it. It's just really, really, really upsetting. And I know not everyone has the same situation because if you've had perhaps a really positive experience, you're less likely to come into the Facebook group. You're less likely to reach out and email. And I know I, I get it. There is a time and a place when we all come together and when we share our experiences. And often it's to have a rant and and, and that's okay. But it makes me feel really frustrated and at my wits end sometimes and thinking, how can we support more and what else can we do? We've recently set up a community interest company, which is fantastic. We're going to do lots of fundraising for more support, more projects, more forums, more groups and programs for women in menopause after cancer. But it's all a slow burner because I know when you're in it, it's exhausting and it can feel really isolating and it can feel as if you haven't got a choice and that's a horrible feeling. I'm realizing I'm saying all of this without having loads and loads of um, advice right now, but my advice would be to go back over all of the episodes and perhaps listen to the episodes on the Menopause and Cancer podcast from the beginning and just work your way through them because you never know what you're going to pick up. Rachel, who is on the podcast today, also went on and said, I shouldn't feel guilty about the impact tamoxifen is having on the quality of life. And the podcast has helped her realize that. And that in return made her feel a little bit more empowered. And I guess that's exactly what it is. Sometimes we can't find the grand sole solution to all of our problems. Sometimes it's little light bulb moments, little awakenings, little moments of just feeling empowered. And that is the work in progress. I always say when I work with people, I say, I don't want this to be a listening podcast. I want this to be a doing podcast where you take action after the episodes. And one way in which we have recently taken action is a really positive example. And I want to share that with you so that you're not walking away from this conversation, just feeling it's all a bit doom and gloom. Last year on my Empowered Menopause program, one of the ladies got wind that I'm hosting a yoga retreat in February. And I usually keep my yoga and retreat work quite separate to the menopause and cancer work because I don't want to overwhelm you all with all the things that are going on. And so at this particular retreat, and it's just happened last week, by the time you're hearing this, probably two weeks ago, three of the amazing ladies from my menopause and cancer program came and joined me on the retreat. And a couple of other ladies reached out as well. They're all navigating menopause after cancer. And so for the first time ever in a group of 30 people that came together for my yoga retreat, six of us were affected by cancer, different types of cancers, different stages, and we were all navigating menopause. And it was such a happy and wonderful and really beautiful time we've spent together because we weren't trying to find solutions to all of our symptoms. We were really there just to connect and to understand one another. And we walked away really, really feeling held and supported and understood by this greater community. And I guess that's all we can do sometimes because we're not always going to have 
a breakthrough, an amazing doctor on the other end of the telephone, giving us options and talking us through our choices. And in the times where perhaps medically not much is happening, maybe you're waiting for an appointment and it's weeks off. Maybe you've just started the treatment and you don't know what to expect. In all that time, there is so much limbo sort of time where we don't actually have an active plan as such. In all that time, it's really beautiful to just to connect with one another. And along those lines, I think it's important to say, connect to the people that really share your experiences. They are your extended family in going through this. It's great to tune in to Davina McCall. I think she's fabulous and a powerhouse and a real menopause campaigner, but she doesn't share the experience and the thought processes of someone who's had a cancer diagnosis as well. And so tune in to the people that have shared and common experiences with you, because I know you will feel a lot more held, just like we did at this last yoga retreat. We felt like celebrating. From the outset, you might think, gosh, what is there to celebrate? We've all had a cancer diagnosis and managing menopause after cancer is tough. Like we know that. But we felt our relationships, our community, the support and understanding we have for one another is definitely worth celebrating. And that's beautiful and exciting. And that's why I wanted to share it with you. But for now, let's welcome the fabulous Rachel onto the show. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Danny. Thank you for asking me to join you. It's an honor. Yeah. So I just want to fill people in. You've listened to one of our previous episodes. And yes, a few you, of your episodes, actually. Yes. Yeah. Several of them. And you felt compelled to write in, which I always mm. love, because um, mm. I just love to hear how it helps people on their thought processes, really. Um, what was the episode you listened to before I introduce you a little bit more? So it was the the episode that really struck home with me was the episode with um, Dr. Macbeth, the mm. GP from Glasgow, talking about tamoxifen. Yeah. yeah. And it sort of really struck home with me because I thought at last um, I'm not imagining all these symptoms that I've been struggling with. So, yes. Yeah. So I found it very insightful and yeah, and felt the need to to contact you to say thank you. Mm. And thanks to Dr. Macbeth. Yeah. And I felt so interested in what you wrote to me about because you're also an oncologist. Yes, I'm a heme oncologist. So that means I deal with blood cancers as opposed to solid tumor cancers. But as someone who is on both sides of the disease, cancer and the we're talking about survivorship issues really on the menopause and cancer podcast. It was so fascinating to email a little bit more with you. And so we had a little bit of an email exchange and you've also told me that your husband tuned into the menopause and cancer podcast. Okay. Which yeah. I love. Yeah, he we'll, does. <laughs> we'll get to all of that a little bit later yeah. in the conversation, but for now, Rachel, tell me what you do as a heme oncologist for anyone that doesn't know, because I haven't got a clue really. Yeah. <laughs> Not many people do Yes, so I'm a heme oncologist. I've been a doctor for 26 years and I've specialised in haematology. So haematology deals with blood disorders. So I've been in haematology for 20 years and a specialist heme oncologist for about 13 years. So we deal with cancer of the blood, bone marrow and lymph system. But primarily my speciality is lymphoma, which is a cancer of the lymph system and lymph tissues. And 
as an oncologist who deals with those sort of cancers, is menopause as sort of a cancer treatment side effect? Is this something or is it does it not really happen? It is indeed. But I'm ashamed to say that nothing I probably really thought about until going through my own cancer treatment. So yes, so we have a, a group of patients that you know, have very aggressive forms of lymphoma and end up having to have bone marrow transplants. And they undoubtedly will, you know, females will go into a very early menopause as a result. Our older cohort of patients tend not to, you know, menstruation will stop during chemotherapy, but then largely it does, you know, restart. If we've got patients who are sort of maybe approaching perimenopause, then starting chemotherapy in that group does tip them into an earlier menopause than they would have experienced naturally. So, so yes. And when they're even younger, it might throw them into a full-on menopause, so even in their 20s and 30s. It, it can do. It's, it's very rare unless they proceed to the more intensive bone marrow transplant treatment. But yes, it can do. It, it, can, it can tip them into an early menopause, yes, much earlier. Mm. And with following these patients after their perhaps active treatment, did some or do some talk to you about their menopausal symptoms or are the side effects of, say, the transplant you've just mentioned are so big yes. that it's very difficult to know what's what? So the, the transplant patients tend to have been very well looked after in terms of we have what's called a late effects clinic because the chemotherapy that's needed for a bone marrow transplant is really intensive. It's a lot more intensive than, for example, we, you, we would, you know, I, anybody would have had in breast cancer. It's, it's quite an intensive regimen um, in order to go through a bone marrow transplant. So they do, the transplant patients have a good follow-up with a late effects clinic where we deal with all sorts of aspects, menopause, bone health, lots of aspects. So, and that follow-up goes on for 10, 15 years sometimes, if not longer. The patients that don't fare so well with sort of late effects of chemotherapy are those that don't need to go through the um, bone marrow transplant procedure. We don't have such a good setup or we didn't have such a good setup and something probably as hemo oncologists, we, we never really thought too much about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, we were there dealing with the primary cancer, their lymphoma, getting them through their chemotherapy, and then not really thinking about long-term effects. Well, that's changed for you, that thinking, hasn't uh, it, Absolutely. Rachel? Yes, absolutely. Are and you happy you... to talk to us about that and why that's changed? Yeah, so so I think um, patients would, you know, very often say after chemotherapy, they were having what are obviously menopausal symptoms. I wasn't trained at all in managing menopausal symptoms. You get very little training in medical school. I've not gone along the general practice route. I'm a, a hospital consultant, so I have no training in gynecology, um, no training in any general practice or menopausal management. So it's something was very, very deficient in my training and also all my colleagues as well. And patients would say after their chemotherapy, they got through their treatment, they were in remission, you know, but ongoing symptoms, females ongoing symptoms related to the menopause. And very often I would find myself saying, go to your GP. 
ask your GP for help is not something I can help with. And, you know, now I'm sort of going through such symptoms myself, it would be nice to have my management all in one place and not then have to go off to my GP and try and involve other people to manage my symptoms that are expected after such treatment. Yeah. And of course, often a GP might be worried if a young patient or any patient presents after such intense treatment and then asking for perhaps more drugs or therapies. It it must also be a concern. You that requires specialist care, really, doesn't it? And it does indeed. Yes. Yeah. If I ask a patient to go to their GP, inevitably the GP will say, Well, I'm not really sure, you know, they you've had a cancer, form of cancer. I need to seek, you know, more specialist advice. And that whole process takes forever. And at the end of, you know, that the patient is there with unbearable symptoms, having yeah. gone such through such, you know, intensive chemotherapy to only be feeling awful afterwards. So when you work in the cancer space and your clients, really, your patients mm. <laughs> have so many problems with late effects, but you're there through their cancer diagnosis and their treatment. When you are then being put onto that escalator yourself of becoming the patient with a potential cancer diagnosis, so when you first experienced symptoms or found something, mm. were you thinking that can't be right, that can't be right, it can't be me? Or were you thinking, it's um, weird, a- I mean, how, as an oncologist, I wonder what that's like. I, I think as a doctor, you have uh, some intuition. So when I noticed my breast lump, I knew from the outset, if that makes sense, that it wasn't right. And yeah, I, I felt from the outset that it was likely to be something significant. So you then took yourself through the process of so, so it, your it own diagnostics? A, yeah, it, or yeah. How, mm. Yeah, so I, I, it took quite a while because I think as as clinicians, as medics, we're not the best at modeling self-care, if that makes sense. We feel guilty for taking any time off work. We go to work when we're ill, when we shouldn't be going to work, when we're really not best at modeling self-care in any way. And I think that's inherent in many, many medics. And nowhere in medical school does it teach you, you know, if you are ill, you go to work. You know, there's no lesson. We don't have a lesson that says you have to carry on. But somewhere along the pathway, I think it's it's guilt for other colleagues having to manage, you know, cover our work. But also we have a duty to our patients. Many medics literally go to work when we shouldn't be there. So, So I think my diagnosis was delayed because I kept thinking, well, I haven't got time to be ill. I I have not got time to be ill. It was in the middle of COVID. Everything was chaotic. Everybody was stressed. And it just was not a good time to even have to think about it. So so sadly, I I delayed seeking any attention for it. Um, And whether you're a medic or not, I'm sure that resonates with many people at home, especially in the pandemic. You might not have wanted to be a burden on the medical system. Doctors were so busy. Yeah. I wonder if there is a little bit of denial, because if you already thought this is going to be significant somewhere in the back of your head, Mm, then mm. it takes a while to get your head around it, doesn't it? And so there is always a bit of denial. How long did that denial period last for you? Um, Four months. 
four months yes yeah so yes it, it was four months before it's I noticed it started to grow and I thought right I've, I've got to do something today about this and then you sat in front of an oncologist yes I did yes yeah yeah well I didn't because it was during COVID during lockdown so my first appointment with the oncologist was uh, via telephone to not really sat in front of them as it were yeah <laughs> yeah we'll talk about whether you're every whether another doctor is every doctor's worst nightmare I'd like to know that <laughs> yeah but, um we'll go into that in a little while what were you then diagnosed with Rachel and what was your treatment that followed so I had a ductal carcinoma it was two and a half centimeters in size um, with some macro metastases in the in the lymph nodes or visible metastases in in the lymph nodes so um, I'd originally had a lumpectomy but in view of the lymph nodes I was recommended further surgery and a full auxiliary node clearance as well and then I need I was advised to adjuvant chemotherapy adjuvant radiotherapy and then adjuvant tamoxifen or endocrine therapy, which for me, as I was perimenopausal, was tamoxifen. Okay. And it's now a year and a half since your active treatment, all your surgeries, radiotherapy, chemotherapy. Mm. You look amazing. Um, you've Thank done up you. your house. <laughs> You're going to go back to work. You have gone back to work. I, yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But things yeah. and life hasn't gone back to normal and you haven't gone back into your full pre-cancer self and things are niggling aren't they which is why I suppose you even tuned into the podcast in the first place yes yes I, th I think the you know the initial treatment for anyone with breast cancer it's a huge shock and you're just desperate to get on with treatment and get through that initial upfront treatment the surgery the chemotherapy the radiotherapy and then you almost feel like you can take a sigh of you know a, a sigh of relief you've got through that and then you're then faced with, for me, um, I was estrogen receptor positive. So I was faced with adjuvant endocrine treatment, which was really painted to me as a, you know, you need this tablet for 10 years. It's very well tolerated. Go off now and you'll be absolutely fine. And nothing was further from the truth because I think, you know, obviously chemotherapy is hard. I had awful nausea and vomiting. And I never want to go through that again in my life. But the adjuvant endocrine treatment has been equally as challenging. And as a as an oncologist, I know breast isn't your speciality. Yeah. Speciality. When you were presented then with tamoxifen, this adjuvant therapy for ten mm. years, did you go and do your put your doctor's head on and research the heck out of it? Did you know exactly what your risks versus benefits were, or are you a little bit like me when I'm in a situation? confronted with my fear of what the outcome or the answer might be I can't even ask a question I totally shut down and so often I didn't even know why I was doing things I was just doing them but I didn't really know my risks versus benefits until I became more clear how did you embark this journey of endocrine therapy so I think very much like you I thought well this is what's advised for me this isn't my speciality yes I am a doctor but I'm not a, a you know a breast oncologist so I will go with the advice of of what I've been taken I've been told you know I, I need this and I've been told it's well tolerated so I just I was being the patient and yeah tried to get on with it 
And, and when did problems come with it? Or when, when was the first time that you realized it's not just a little white pill? Um, I, I think, I mean, probably from, from the outset, really, um, I mean, I had fluid retention, the fatigue was beyond, beyond description, but developed some joint pains, not, not severe, but, um, you know, they, they were there. So lots and lots of side effects that, you know, initially, I thought, is it just being post chemotherapy, post radiotherapy, but then things started to make me think, well, actually, I should be better. I see my patients in work, they're generally better by, you know, six months after they finish their chemotherapy. And I seem to be getting worse, if that that makes sense. Um, yeah, not showing signs of improvement, I wasn't returning to normal, hot flushes were just, you know, horrendous to manage. So yes, yeah, so then I started to question the little white tablet that was given to me and you know what were the benefits what were the risks and and I think I said to you I did reach out to um to a GP and and again I was sort of you know led to believe that no one else suffered taking this this tablet I was you know I was the one not many people had problems with it it was generally very well tolerated and and really maybe I was being I had some health anxiety and you know being stressed when there was no need to be stressed over it wow what an what an unhelpful response mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. you go and seek help yes and yeah. especially knowing how hard it is for you to go and seek help as you've explained you probably yes. don't bring the GP every Friday with another ailment, no. right? It must take quite a lot for no. you to even go and have that appointment to then be this rejected and dismissed. Did at one point, did you think it's all in your head? Because I know I've had phases where I thought, I don't even know where I'm coming or going anywhere. Is mm. this actually a, a symptom still? Or is this because I'm obsessing over it? <laughs> or mm. is this because I can't let go and I just need to move on? And if they tell me it's not cancer, it'll disappear. And for many periods, over the last 10 years, I doubted what I was experiencing. It's a weird situation in your head. Did you have a little bit of that? or is Yeah, yeah, very much that, yes. I, I mean, part of me felt, you know, put brave face on and carry on. Um, there was that aspect. But then I thought, no, this is impacting on my quality of life quite significantly. But then being told, well, it's generally very well tolerated. I haven't had anyone else tell me these things. Then you start to think, well, is it me? Is there something else wrong with me? Has something else happened to me? And then the rational part of your brain says, well, no, there's nothing else wrong with you. But you you doubt, don't you? You worry, you doubt. Yeah. And and yeah. at one point, you might also think, am I a little bit weak? Should I? Is there something wrong with me? I, I don't often thought, is there something wrong with me? I should be in a different state now. I should be really enjoying and celebrating and mm -hmm. living life to the max and so grateful mm -hmm. every day. And when that's not happening, you sort of almost look for defaults within. Yes, yeah. Yourself. And, and you, you feel a bit guilty, don't you? Because you think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm lucky. I found this lump. It's been managed. It's been dealt with. And I should be grateful that I'm here. I'm still alive. And why am I complaining about taking a tablet that that is going to ultimately prevent, you know, reduce my recurrence risk? 
So there's a feeling of guilt, isn't there, that you shouldn't be complaining. There's yeah. lots of feelings, feelings of guilt, feeling you feel a nuisance and and doubt and also panic and anxiety that maybe, well, it's it's not a side effect of the treatment. And is, you know, is there something else going on? Yeah, it's horrendous. And so many people that have been diagnosed in COVID haven't really had good access to an oncologist or some people no. actually then don't see an oncologist. They're sort of under the surgeon's team, depending mm. on sort of who yes. manages your care. Were you able to talk through your side effects with your oncologist ever? No. So so I think getting cancer at any time is awful. Getting cancer during COVID is truly uh, was was truly hideous. I think I can't think of a worse time for anyone to have it, and that's my, you know, anybody, not just myself. So access, direct access to clinicians was difficult. Lots was you know a telephone consult only. Yes, it was difficult to discuss things. Whereas a face to face consult is a lot easier to discuss concerns and side effects. I don't like telephone consults as a as a clinician myself. I don't like discussing things over the telephone with patients. So I much prefer face-to-face because you can ask more, you get a better idea of what your patient has understood. And it's just, you know, for such important things, it's, you know, it's just much, much better. Yeah. So where are you at with it now, if I may ask? A year and a half um, later? Mm, mm. who's helped um, who's helped what's helped so so I think realizing that really you have to be very often your own advocate for your your own health you have to you know help is out there but it's seeking he's seeking that help it's not easy to come by it's not obvious and and it is reaching out to people list, like yourself and and listening to pod, you know your podcast was very insightful so I have you know learned that I'm I'm not alone there are many, many people suffering it's really strange because I lived um during my university years I lived with you know in houses with different people three of us have had breast cancer oh wow uh, one yeah. of the my friends who I lived with died when we were 34 so she had uh, breast cancer um and and sadly died then my other really good friend had breast cancer probably about seven years ago and has been taking tamoxifen and has also been struggling. But but likewise, we've never talked about it. We're very wow. good friends. And it's something, I don't know, that she hasn't felt she could bring up with anybody for the same reasons, I think, feeling guilty and feeling in a nuisance. So, um, wow. Yeah. So so going back to your question, I've, I've reached out to various people. And I think the realisation that you're not alone in feeling these symptoms has a huge positive impact because you 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 think well gosh I'm not imagining this they are very real and you know try to manage the symptoms the best I can yeah and have you ever tried to tinker with your tamoxifen some women take it at a different time of the day others change to a different brand they go through lots of different brands have yeah. you gone down that so sort of I've route? Tried, tried all that yes yeah different brands um different timings I've tried every possible scenario and there is a brand that I certainly is better for me so yeah I've tried everything and tried to you know the timing in the day particularly I think is important for me when when I take it okay 
So that's great to know because those are little changes that don't have an impact on on much else but your overall experience. Mm. And so since you've started tamoxifen, you've never had the conversation that this is actually really difficult for you with your oncologist. No, 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 I haven't. And you, the, the reason why I'm asking so, and I sort of need to just get that in my head is because there are so many oncologists that actually don't know how difficult some of the treatments are that they give us, or perhaps even the GP that you spoke to probably answered from a really well-meaning place absolutely yeah that's what I'm trying to get to you so I don't never yes. think it's it there's much point in blaming anyone I'm sure the GP you sat opposite wasn't telling lies I'm sure that was his or her experience experience of, right yeah absolutely oh, and it just shows me if you didn't have the conversation before with your oncologist they're not they can't mm. know mm. GPs can't know unless we talk and and so I think I want to just highlight how brilliant and how important it is that we say and talk and speak our truths because it yes. doesn't just help us. It helps our whole medical team yes. rethink what they are giving us maybe. Yes. So so for me, I don't know about other areas in, in the UK, how breast cancer is managed. But so I was managed by a surgeon at a local hospital. And then for adjuvant chemotherapy, I was transferred to a medical oncologist at a different hospital. And then for radiotherapy, I saw a different oncologist. So I no longer see either of those oncologists. I did not see the medical oncologist after my last session of chemo. I didn't see the radiotherapist, uh, radiotherapy oncologist after radiotherapy. So I have no further appointments. Yeah. So I'm discharged to uh, basically a, a breast care nurse, no routine appointments, only contacted them if there were any concerns. Yeah. And this is really something that would be amazing if it ever changed in our lifetime, that there was a late effects clinic for anyone who is um, at least on any long term endocrine treatments because they affect us so much and women manage for five, 10 years. It's madness that there isn't more support isn't it mm, I know mm. I know that obviously if we had loads of resources there would be but in the meantime it's really yes. difficult to know where to go for that help yes so so I did have a discussion with the breast care nurse who is my main point of contact and we just got discussed as we've been through strategies trying different brands and you know different timings and managing trying to manage the best I could the side effects so you and your friend, you are now talking about your stiff joints and about Sorry all the other about. sleepless <laughs> nights and hot flushes. So you have conversations and giggles, I suppose, yes, about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and my very good friend is a GP. So if she goes to any meetings, she'll, you know, send me all the information she's she's gained from those meetings. So, yeah, it's our hot topic now. But isn't it <laughs> funny how we never spoke about it before, both doctors? both very good friends and she yeah we'd, we'd not spoken so I had no idea how tough a time she was having yeah yeah so um yeah and I think at one point I think I made the decision for myself when I found it really hard to move on initially and to mm. for me it was always the fear of recurrence that really stopped me in my tracks and really stopped me from having a good enough day it was always really impacted by that worry and I think at one point 
I almost thought I just need to fake it until I make it. I think I've seen a, a TED talk by a really inspirational speaker and she spoke about fake it until you make it. Like even if you don't feel like smiling, smile because, you know, one at one point in the day you'll feel like it and that sort of. And I thought maybe it would maybe I just need to put it all behind me by pretending it's not happening. And maybe that's what's happened to you and your friend and so many of us that we it's not that we don't dare to say and it, that we don't want to be a burden, but sometimes we almost want to convince ourselves that it's a little bit better than it is. It might just be a strategy that it's, I know it's not very helpful, but I know so many of us do it and feel like it. And it's ever so difficult because then you're on your own and it's awful really. Yeah. Yes. No, I agree. There's definitely an element of, again, you know, it's keep, keep calm and carry on, isn't it? You, you feel you just have to put it behind you, behind you and, and carry on. But yes, I, I think there comes a point where you think, well, I, I yeah, I, I can't. This, this isn't right. Um, it's affecting my quality of life, and it's taking steps to, to yeah, to do what you can to mitigate any side effects. Yeah, yeah. And how has your husband dealt with all of this? I guess our partners. Yeah. I mean, I all of our partners are doing such a great job. And when we're actively undergoing through cancer treatment, there is something they can actively do, maybe make you a hot cup of tea or um, help you when you're feeling nauseous or vomiting. And there is an active phase of support. When that stops and everyone is happy and celebrating with us that we've done this really difficult time of active treatment, they quite like to move on, or that's at least what's happened to us. How was it for you mm. and your husband yes very similar again I don't think Covid helped my my husband isn't a medic he's a scientist so I don't think Covid helped because he couldn't I mean most of the appointments were by telephone so that was one thing but you know pre-Covid he would have been allowed to come into the chemotherapy day unit with me and you know experienced you know how chemotherapy was given Again, that's something I knew. I knew, and you know, I I had the cannula, not not a line. I knew how it was given. I knew what to expect. But but he had no idea really. Once I went through those double doors, what what went on? So um, that that aspect was quite difficult because I get home and say, well, you you know, you know, I've been through this today. You know, this has happened to me. But really, he didn't know because he'd not experienced it before. But yes, very practically helpful. We have three children. We were homeschooling at the time because we were in COVID lockdown. So he sort of took on that aspect of the caring role very well. But then subsequently, I think it's, you know, it's almost thinking, well, you've been through the worst treatment. It's just carrying on now. And, you know, things must be getting better for you. And did you say to him when you started tamoxifen and you had all these symptoms, did you continue to say to him, what you thought was wrong with you or your, your your physical ailments mental mentally how you were doing were you did you continue co to communicate yes i think i think certain aspects he finds difficult to communicate and i think that's the scientist probably in him where everything is black or white um ah. very much with scientists yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so yeah. yes yeah so it i would say it's difficult and lots of side effects um I've had I've had um, uh, really awful pulsatile tinnitus, and you know it's it's probably a combination of of 
of treatment and you know sort of lacking estrogen now so that that sort of was a revelation there needed to be a cause for it as it were he needed a, a scientific cause not yeah he needed a firm explanation for it couldn't just understand that it was a combination of factors right um, right and he did make sense of it by listening to a few of our podcast episodes yes, he i did. was i was giggling at that when i read your email because I thought gosh we talk a lot about emotions and about all the things that are really not black or white they're really gray mm-hmm. and we did try and tap into all of the gray areas of how to manage menopause after cancer and so as a scientist it must have been very interesting but I'm glad he sort of connected some things back to you yes yes he has and certainly he's benefited too from reaching out, listening to things and um, your podcast, other podcasts. So he's he's very proactive, I think, trying to understand, trying to understand what's going on. And has that changed how you or how has your own experience changed how you sit in front of your own patients now since you became a patient yourself? Yes, definitely. It's it's changed in, in a number of ways. I think one of the most important things is how you say things to patients. And I can think of several times during my treatment when things were said to me and it just sent me into a sort of a downward spiral, probably because I was overinterpreting what had been said to me. So I think I'm now very conscious when I explain diagnoses to patients, when I explain their treatment plans, when I explain their prognosis. I'm very careful now to ask the patient to reiterate what I've said to them so I know what their understanding is. Because very often what you think you've said to a patient is interpreted entirely different. And I did that myself. You know, I would take what the oncologist had said to me a few times and think totally misinterpret I think what what was said to me um so I think that's one important thing as a clinician speaking to patients um and making sure that they've thoroughly understood your what the conversation has been communication is key isn't it and I remember many times that I really just focused on a part of the conversation though. So I don't think, I think that's it. either of my surgical team or oncologist or anyone ever got it really wrong. However, when there were two or three things said, I focused on one thing rather than yes. another. And that's all I could focus on. And those were always the negatives. And it's really yep. difficult to get that conversation and communication mm. right. Mm. So, so I think exactly exactly like you, I would take one part of a conversation and focus on that. And it inevitably was the negative part of the conversation. And really sort of by the end of the day, end of the afternoon or whatever, that had been completely blown up out of, in my own mind, out of oh, proportion. Absolutely. Yes. I remember yeah. so clearly my surgeon when we had back uh, results and I remember so clearly he phoned and he said I've got good news and bad news and of course I'm never going to really focus on the good news so much yeah. but the good news for me were it hadn't spread into my lymph nodes and the bad news was how aggressive my type of breast cancer was and so mm. for years all I could focus on the grade of mm. the cancer and yeah. I wonder if the if my 
really months and years would have changed if there wasn't just the good news or the bad news, if there was just, I've got information for you. Yes. Yeah. And I thought about so many nuances so often, but of course, you know, you know, you can't imagine what people are going to think, what they can take away from. You see so many patients, but it's wonderful to hear how this has influenced your own work now and and so many patients will benefit from that. Yes, yes. So I think that's the biggest thing is the communication. And in terms of, you know, I have lots now of practical support. I've, I've been there and got the T-shirt, as it were. So nausea and vomiting is is hot on 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 my list, and I ensure that no one is suffering because that was my biggest biggest. This was my first cycle of chemotherapy. It was just awful to the point where I thought I can't have any more chemotherapy. So so I think that you know I've got lots of tips, practical aspects, cutting your hair beforehand. My hair was long. And I think probably the lowest point of my treatment was after my second cycle. My hair was probably sort of almost shoulder length. Um, I'd used the cold cap, but it wasn't helping. Um, and my head got profoundly matted. And I asked my husband to cut it. Again, it was during COVID, no hairdressers. So I asked him to cut it. I said, just do it. I put an eye mask on so I didn't have to see it being done. And I looked up when he finished. He said, I've finished. He said, do you want to have a look at what I've done? So I looked up, my hair had gone, but he'd only gone and used an Ikea scissors that we'd had since we were students in 1997 to cut my hair. So I think little things like that, <laughs> cutting your hair beforehand, um, not asking your husband to cut your hair, your hair no, with an Ikea no. scissors. And I think I've got lots of tips now in terms of support for external agencies. Um, yeah. For me, Maggie's was a life saviour. I needed to see yes. a psychologist. And I had, you know, even through COVID, I managed to see a psychologist face to face, which again, waiting for one probably through the NHS at that time would never have happened. So mm. Maggie's was a life saviour. Getting back to work for me was also an issue because my work came with a lot of stress and very long hours. And I was very conscious I couldn't let myself get back in that state of stress because as you know stress has a negative impact on all yeah. aspects of emotional and physical well-being so I couldn't sort of visualize visualize myself getting back to work because of the stress that I feared that came with it so I worked with a charity called working with cancer who I think oh yes Barbara met. yeah mm -hmm. yeah so absolutely I wouldn't have got back to work if I hadn't have worked with them wow um, yeah, that's powerful so, uh, that's yeah, a really yeah, powerful yeah so lots of lots of tips for patients and then the main thing is taking note of menopause symptoms post chemotherapy for my patients and trying to support them the best I can and I've done now several CPD courses on the menopause in order that I feel more confident knowing who needs what prescribed amazing so, so yeah so lots lots of tips really and I think the the what I hadn't realized again is that more support is needed when your upfront treatment is finished because in that uh, in that early stage you're just on a sort of a, um a, you know a hamster wheel almost you just you've got you've got all the appointments you've got to get through the chemo radiotherapy and then afterwards everything stops and yeah. for me I had no further appointments with anybody um so all of a sudden you have all this support and then it's taken away you're not feeling better. 
you're still feeling pretty rubbish. And, you know, it's it's making sure people are aware that we're there to support them. And it's a lonely place to be in then, isn't it? When suddenly yeah. that support falls away. And I can only imagine with your patients who've undergone such intense treatment, that sort of falling off the cliff must mm-hmm. even feel more profound because they must have had such intensive care with nurses and doctors for a period of time. Yes, yes, no, it is, it is. And it's the awareness that when you suddenly remove that, that does have a detrimental effect on them because it adds to their anxiety and stress. And and those anxieties and stresses are genuine, they're real concerns. So, you know, it, yeah. it's addressing those and being aware of them. Yeah. So, so I've, Why yeah. I, mm, sorry to interrupt, I just thought, why I really thought it was so wonderful that you, we're happy to talk to us is that of course we don't want and there is no need for every good clinician to experience what their patients are going through that would be mad right <laughs> you don't have to have yeah. a stroke to be an amazing doctor and help people who are stroke vic- victims of stroke and at the same time i'm wondering how so many oncologists can learn from your experience and all the things that you've implemented into your practice and and you're already doing it I, i've just had my answer because you're speaking to your friend who's a gp and that will um change her practice and slowly slowly the menopause after cancer sort of space regardless of what cancer you've had will get more awareness by more of us talking about it yes definitely and and i do think you know it has it well as everybody is aware it hasn't been something that's gained much attention in the past has it it's been you know, something that's just not been discussed. So there is certainly more awareness. And, you know, quite rightly, um, for, for the, you know, things can move forward, hopefully, yeah, for the better. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for coming on and chatting to us today. I'm really, really excited for everyone to listen to our conversation, because it's just so insightful to hear things when you're the oncologist and the patient at the same time. Yes, yeah, no, thank you for asking me. I, I think the other thing I would just say, I think you um, mentioned it earlier, being being a patient. And sometimes people think being a doctor and being a patient, it must be quite easy. But I don't think there's anything further from the truth. And far from being empowered with our knowledge, we're often made to feel a nuisance. And I think you asked earlier, is, having a doctor as your patient uh, your worst nightmare oh, and I yes. think yeah I think lots of us as clinicians doctors will have certain people who for various reasons we find hard to deal with uh, yeah. you know they, they may be rude they may be whatever and I think most clinicians will have high on their list that you know having a doctor as a patient is is very difficult it's very difficult and I don't know why why that is, whether we feel threatened. Um, I, I don't know. But very often when a doctor's a patient, they, for me, I've very often felt I was a nuisance. Yeah. And, and maybe you seek attention less often than, than another person because you don't want to be that, you know, yeah. doctor making a fuss over something. Um, yeah. So, and so I it's, wonder... It's tricky. It, I wonder if you if you're a doctor treating a doctor, if it brings it closer to home, I think you might then be thinking, oh gosh, if it can happen to her, it can happen to me. It's just that one bit closer to home. And of course, yeah, yeah. that must be really difficult. So you'd rather not perhaps even, even go there. 
Yes, I guess, yeah, there there is that aspect too. Um, I don't know, it's very strange. It's it's strange, but I think if you'd ask more if you ask most doctors, we're we're not keen on having another doctor as as a patient. <laughs> um maybe it's fear of yeah, I I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's yes, yes. Well, we have but, so many healthcare professionals, amazing nurses, amazing doctors listening to this. I wonder if they have a little think to themselves now of what sort of on top, you know, comes out very high on their list. Um yes, it'll be yeah. interesting to see. Yes, but but I think far from being empowered, you can it can be opposite. And and I wonder too if you um for me, I wonder if a lot of things weren't discussed that clearly with me because maybe, you know, they felt I had knowledge and maybe they um, assumed. Yes, yeah, yeah. Maybe there um, was an assumption that you might know or you would have done your research or they didn't want to repeat themselves. Yeah. See, when I when we have um we run groups through charities and helping people navigate the medical system and helping people sort of just make empowered decisions whether that is to tinker with their medication like you did or to start exercising or to eat an extra apple a day whatever it is or go mm. to acupuncture I always feel there is something you can do and then we talk about what does it mean to be the empowered patient and often I say and you would have heard me talk about it the empowered patient I feel is always a bit more difficult as a woman as a patient but obviously no doctor wants a difficult patient and no doctor really wants that empowered patient that thinks he or she is entitled to mm. services or extra help. But that's never really what I mean. But where you started off the conversation with me earlier is, is when you sort of said things weren't right and I needed to do something about it. And that's exactly when we have to step into being a little bit more empowered and saying, I deserve some help here things aren't right I do deserve the help that doesn't make you difficult or empowered that just means yeah. you're looking after your own energy house and yeah. your own health and your life isn't it yes no absolutely and being you know an advocate for your own health yeah so it's, much it's to strange. unpick Rachel <laughs> so much to unpick yeah it's a really fascinating and difficult journey and thank you for sharing it with us amazing that's okay thank you for asking me lovely to speak to you Oh, I just love talking to Rachel. She is so reflected. I just think it's amazing all the wisdom she is taking into her clinical practice now as an oncologist and how that her own experience has really changed her work and, and how she helps and supports all of her patients. I think there is so much learning for other doctors and healthcare professionals from Rachel's experience and also from her openness. Since recording this podcast interview, I've had more email exchanges with Rachel and Rachel was telling me about being mismanaged quite a lot of times um, during and after her treatment. And a lot of what she was saying is really outrageous and upsetting. And just like I said at the beginning of the podcast, when I tap into our Facebook community, a lot of the messages that are really upsetting, people are really desperate for solutions and help. And there seems to be so, so little out there. And so I need your help. And if you're sitting at home thinking, I know this is my calling, I want to help Danny and all her projects, then reach out to us. We've recently set up a community interest company through which we're um, starting to fundraise and look and apply for grants. So if you are someone who has an interest in fundraising or you've worked for a charity 
or you've got experience with anything like that, then reach out danny at healthyhomey.com and we'd love to get you on board and to see what amazing things we can do for our community. If you have any other ideas of how you want to tap in and help reach out, our community is growing and growing and we're going from strength to strength and I can't wait to make big waves with you together. And so, yeah, do reach out. And I also need your help with something else. Rate and review this podcast. Thank you very much. So many of you write me lovely emails about how the podcast has helped you and in which way you've been able to move forward or what your thoughts were. But I need it all in a place. Otherwise, I can't ever find anything when I need it. It's a bit tricky to review and rate a podcast, but go into your app wherever you listen to your podcasts Try and give it the stars and then leave your honest review so that others who are navigating this can understand what it does for you because it's very different for all of us. So try and leave a review. It means loads to me. And as we're going through fundraising and sponsorship proposals, this is really important because I can share that with a greater community and audience so I can tell people why the things we're trying to do are important to you, to all of us out there. So I think that's it from me. I'm going to love you and leave you here. If you're still out on a walk, keep on walking. If you're back at home with a cup of tea, enjoy it. If you want to come onto the podcast to share your story, I know more and more healthcare professionals are listening to our conversations. Maybe you're a doctor, maybe you're an oncologist like Rachel, reach out, talk to us, because I feel at the moment this conversation is so important to so many of us and I want to keep it going.